if you didn't realize it, starting last week, we started a, a kind of mini-series, if you will, on uh, the Advent series, uh, or the Advent season, sorry. And that kicked off with none other than our dear brother Samson uh, bringing a beautiful word from the Lord that was insanely encouraging. I got to listen to it on my way home um, from the church I was at last week. Um, and for those of you who don't know what Advent is, um, sometimes we throw words around and we just assume that everybody kind of knows what it is, Advent uh, on a church calendar, which the church calendar kind of maps out um, specific moments that are really important for Christians to reflect on, to think about, to remember. Um, so Advent is typically the four weeks before Christmas. And I can't even believe that we're saying that, that we're, we're really close to writing 2024 on everything that we write. I mean, it's unbelievable how fast this year went. But Advent is the four-week uh, four weeks before Christmas, and it focuses on the anticipation of the arrival of the Messiah, or King Jesus. And if you were to look up in a normal dictionary what Advent means, it literally means the arrival of a notable person, a thing, or an event. So for Christians, this was the foretold prophecy coming to reality in the form of a child being born to a virgin the birth of Jesus Christ himself, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the everlasting God, God giving the greatest gift of all to mankind, his one and only son to be offered as one final sacrifice for the redemption of our sins and the hope for all mankind. We see in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, it says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory in his name the nations will put their hope. And how encouraging that is. And as I spent time prayerfully approaching our text today, I learned something. And what I learned is that hope that we see in Scripture, hope that we see in our text this morning, and hope that we see throughout both the Old and the New Testament is a very different hope than we would understand it as humans today. So before we jump in, let's go to the Lord Let's open in a word of prayer, and I want to share with you the word that the Lord's put on my heart this morning. So, King Jesus, we thank you that you came to this earth. Lord, you walked on the earth that your Father created, and you came to redeem it. And Jesus, there's not a thing that we could do to reconcile the gap that sin has created, yet you came and said, I'll do it. You lived like us. You walked like us. But you lived a sinless life. King Jesus, in this time we have together in this season, let us remember all that you are. That you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We give this morning, we give this time, and this season to you. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Now, hope is a very interesting word. It elicits some emotion. Uh, 
And if I was to ask everyone here to define it, I think we'd all have a similar undertone in how we would define it, but I think the words that we would use would maybe be a little different. In fact, I asked a bunch of people over the last couple of weeks how they would define the word hope, and I got a few answers. One person said that hope is the expectation that a situation will be better. We like that one? Is that a good one? The expectation that a situation will get better. Another one said that hope is believing something will happen before you can see it. I really resonate with that one, right? I mean, I remember all the trades the New York Jets did this offseason, and I walked into the year so hopeful, and as I sat next to Pastor Ron on the plane, he watched my world just get absolutely crushed as uh, Aaron Rodgers got hurt and we're just going to kind of move on to the next thing. I know Ryan knows what I'm talking about as he watched his Denver Broncos get crushed last night. And now he's a Detroit Lions fan for the next 24 hours, right? Yeah. Maybe like about 10, 10, 12 hours left in that, in that deal. Okay. So it's hoping that a situation would get better. And another person, um, if I asked, is a big Star Wars fan. And he said, hope is Luke and Leia Skywalker. So if you're a Star Wars fan, that joke is hilarious. If you've never seen it, we're just going to move on to the next thing. So the actual definition, though, if you look up the word hope, is a feeling of expectation and desire for certain things to happen. So hope is a feeling, an expectation that somehow things are going to work out with the best possible outcome that we can create in our minds. And I remember when I was younger... I live this. I mean, my brother and I could not wait for Christmas to come around. Anybody remember those days? Right? We used to, I don't, this is dating myself maybe, but we had these things called department store catalogs that would come in the mail, and they were 800 pounds. Um, they were a billion pages long, and they had something in it, if you're under the age of 20, just follow me here. I'm going to teach you something that's very important. They had something called an index in the back. And an index was a list of everything that was in the magazine and the page that it was attached to. We didn't have information at our fingertips. We wanted to know something, you had to look it up. We had a set of encyclopedias in our house. So if you wanted to know something, it took you 45 minutes to figure out which encyclopedia it was in. You want to know about dinosaurs? Might not be in the D one. It could be in P for prehistoric. You didn't know. It's just the way that they uh, organized all of the information that they had. But I remember looking in the index, figuring out what page the toys would be on, and my brother and I would open it, and like our lives were incredible for the next few minutes. We would look through things, and we pictured how perfect our life would be if only we had Castle Grayskull in our house. How great it would be to add the Obi-Wan Kenobi with the lightsaber in his arm to our G.I. Joes because he could handle business. You know, sure, my parents raised us with understanding that Christmas was about celebrating Jesus. There's no doubt about it. But the G.I. Joe avalanche tank that shot spring-loaded missiles and disc at Cobra Commander, we needed that because evil wasn't going to be defeated on its own. Okay, that tank was the solution to our problems. Cobra Commander is a mean dude, and he needed to be destroyed. I mean, this was our time in this season of Christmas to make a list, to check it twice, and to give that list and share it with our parents. We had hopes. We had dreams. And when Christmas came along, Christmas morning, my brother and I would 
usually wake up at a very ungodly hour, try to wake up my parents, which I'd like to apologize to my parents for doing that as a child, because I'm on the other end of that now, where it's like, why are we up this early, right? There's this anticipation, and we would look out at our Christmas tree and all the gifts that were wrapped, and we would think, everything changes at this moment. Evil will be defeated today. (laughs) But without fail, every year, there's a few things that were under the tree that no one wanted. And you know exactly what it is. You'd open a box and you'd, you'd start thinking, oh, I bet this is, this is like a game or I bet this is like a sword or I bet this is something else. And you open it and there's underwear in there. And you're like, dude, what is this? And I remember like looking at my brother like, yo, did you put that, did you put that on the list? Because we didn't put that on the list, right? There'd be clothes and things like that. And we'd look at our parents and my mom would be like, you can't fight evil with dirty underwear. You know, you need, you need these things. In fact, I, I watched this exact thing happen this week. We have a teenager in our house now, which is that just, I need a minute. If you could, in this, if you don't know what to pray about this week, pray for me and my wife, because we now have a 13-year-old at our house. And on Thursday night, we had a little family gathering. We, you know, had a cake and stuff, and he got some presents. And it was hilarious because he's really sprouted up this year. Like, none of his clothes fit him from the beginning of the school year. So he wears his, like, jeans or sweatpants, and they, like, go to his calves. And he's like, these are good. We're like, no, they're not, man. They're not. Like, if you want to get made fun of, do that. Go to school. That's the way to get made fun of. So we, my wife and I, bought some sweatshirts and sweatpants and shirts and clothes and stuff and gave it to him on his birthday. And as he opened them, he literally just put them on the floor and was like moved on to the next thing. Did not care at all that they were clothes. Didn't care, right? See, the perspective that we realized is my son wanted things. I wanted things. My brother wanted things. But there's times we don't get what we want, but we get what we need. Because people around us maybe know something more than we do. And this perspective of having this desire to have something our way is not new to my son. It's not new to my brother or I. It's actually been rooted in us since the beginning of time. And really, there's no greater example of this than when we get to the book of 1 Samuel. If you've ever, I don't know, as you read scripture, you might have a book or a passage that really hits you hard. It becomes kind of your favorite portion of scripture. And every time I read First and Second Samuel, I love it. I can't stop reading it. You see, First Samuel takes place after this time where God hears the cries of his people in Egypt. He sends Moses to rescue them from their oppressors. And then he makes a covenant relationship with his people on Mount Sinai. We know that they didn't really make it into the promised land. They were afraid to go there, and they have this long trip through the wilderness before they finally make it to the promised land. And the promised land was representative of the place where God's people were supposed to be faithful to God and obey his covenant commands. And if you read the Old Testament, when they finally get to the promised land, they have an amazing leader named Joshua. And Joshua loved the Lord. And at the end of his life, when he passes away, he makes a bold statement where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it was a warning to all of Israel to say, do not go back to the things that kept us from God's presence. Don't go back to the things that keep us away from walking in the fullness of what God has for us. 
But soon after he died, Israel quickly went back to doing what they thought was best. Remember, these are the same people who, when they came out of Egypt and Moses went to get the Ten Commandments, I guess he was up there too long, and they created a new thing to worship that quickly. In fact, this is a time in biblical history where chaos kind of ensued, and there was a need for wise and moral leaders. And this era is told through the book of Judges in the Old Testament, which, if you've never read the book, is a very graphic book. So as the book of Judges ends, we get to the book of Samuel, and Samuel documents this transition, if you will, from Israel being ruled by judges in tribes to being ruled by a king in a unified kingdom in Jerusalem. But as you read this book and as it opens, it starts with a very tragic moment. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9, we read, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old. Like, just stop there for a minute. Like, how many people like hearing that? You know, you are old. Why don't you back off, all right? He's not that old, right? You are old. Granny likes being called old, so that's good, right? Scripture tells us that, you know, gray hair is a crown of wisdom. So being old is not a bad thing. But they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have. This is supposed to be God's chosen people who God gave the law in the Old Testament to that was supposed to separate them from everyone else. And now these folks are like, but what if we looked like everybody else? But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now, if you read First and Second Samuel, they're technically not two books. It's actually one book written on two scrolls because it was such a long story. It documents this transition of power from Samuel to Saul and then into King David. And if you know anything about Saul's life, he created a lot of havoc. But this moment in Scripture is a prime example of man telling God what we need and not trusting him. We want what everyone else has. Our lives will be better if only we look like every other nation. Listen, I know you took us out of Egypt. I know you split the Red Sea, Lord. I know you spoke to Moses through a burning bush and created all things, but really, we know what's best. One of my favorite authors once said, human beings seem to have a perpetual tendency to have someone else talk to God for them. We are content to have the message secondhand. One of Israel's fatal mistakes was their insistence on having a human king rather than resting on the theocratic rule of God over them. We can detect a note of sadness in the word of the Lord. They have rejected me from being king over them in 1 Samuel 8, 7. The history of religion is the story of an almost desperate scramble to have a king a mediator, a priest, a pastor, a go-between. In this way, we do not need to go to God ourselves. 
Such an approach saves us from the need to change, for to be in the presence of God is to change. So often I read this portion of Scripture in First and Second Samuel. I read the Old Testament. I look at the world that we live in today, and I wonder, God, why have you not just abandoned us? Because we don't do anything collectively as humanity to put God first. Look at all of the commercialization of Easter, Christmas, and every other thing that would be on a church calendar. You know what your hope would be? Your hope would be getting that thing that you want in the store. Your hope would be having a certain amount of money in the bank because when that happens, life is going to be great. All mankind has done over and over again is reject God. We've placed our hope in all of the wrong things. Israel did it back then, and unfortunately, we do it today. Our hope is all too much rooted in expectation. The idea that things will look or be a certain way in the future. We say to ourselves, you know, life would be great if only I had an extra car in the garage. Life would be great if only there was never traffic. Life would be great if only, if only, if only, if only. I bet if we stopped for a minute and said, life would be better if, and I left a blank and gave you a moment to reflect, each of us would fill something different in. But an expectant hope can hinder the move of God because it's based on what we can fathom and what we are comfortable with. You see, this push and pull throughout the Old Testament continues until we get to this book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and Isaiah brought a really difficult message to Israel who was in the midst of rebellion, and he shared this message that your rebellion is going to come at a cost. And eventually Israel is exiled. They set up shop in Babylon, but Isaiah has this message that no matter the cost, God would one day fulfill all of his promises. That despite you turning your back on the king of kings, he would send a king from the line of David to establish God's kingdom. And we find that in 2 Samuel verse 7. That he would lead Israel in obedience to all the laws of the covenant made in Mount Sinai that we found in Exodus 19. And that God's blessing and salvation would flow out to all nations like God promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. If you read the book of Isaiah, you'll find that the prophet details the upcoming fall of Jerusalem and its exile of its people into Babylon. It is in this book of Isaiah that we see the difference between what an earthly hope is and a biblical one. And it brings us to this beautiful passage that's nestled in the midst of this devastating warning of destruction, a moment where a prophet of the Lord points to hope, one where he foretells of a virgin who will give birth to a king, the one who will reign forever. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And if we look forward to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, 
and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see, hope, in its truest sense, is not one that's rooted in optimism, but rather it's based on a person. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope, the hope that we find in Christ Jesus, is not focused on our circumstances. In fact, if you read Scripture, Hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there is no evidence that things will ever get better. But they choose hope anyway. It's God's past faithfulness that motivates our hope for the future. You look forward by looking backwards, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's what drives David to write in Psalm 39 while he's being hunted down by Saul. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope, my hope is in you. I mean, David had opportunities to kill Saul, and he didn't do it because he knew God's plan was higher than his. It's the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament who lived in a very dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and chose when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope in Hosea 2.15. He recognized that much like the day when Israel came up out of the land of Egypt, God could do the same thing today. If he could redeem his people then, he could do it again. Biblical hope is living not with expectation, but rather expectancy, knowing that the one who knows it all is in control, knowing that whatever the outcome is, it's going to be okay because God's ways are higher than ours. It's believing that God is a promise and not simply a possibility, knowing that when he says, I came to seek and to save all that are lost, that he was serious when he said it. And he did it in an unorthodox way. Over 300 times from Genesis to Malachi do we see prophecy detailing the coming of an anointed one. The one who will not only save Israel, but will be the final sacrifice that would bring us back to the king of kings. We see this in Luke as we read this beautiful Christmas story. In chapter 2, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house, line, to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there were no guest rooms available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, 
keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they said to him, they spread the, when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The greatest gift this world has ever seen, this care package of hope, did not come in the way that we expected or wanted, but he came in what we needed as a child who needed his diaper changed, who one day would grow up to be beaten and broken and bruised for our sins, but first had a moment where he laughed in the arms of his mother and father, who learned to crawl and walk on the earth that God created with his words, who grew up and lived the sinless life. And the more I thought about what he did for you and for me this week, the more I wept at my desk. As I watched my son turn 13 this week, I thought, I would never give him up. I don't care what the circumstance is, I wouldn't do it. Yet God, knowing what his son would endure, said this is the only way. We created the chasm between God and us. We are the ones who sinned. And all God has done is been faithful to say, but I still love you. There is still hope. No matter how far away you think you might be, the King of Kings loves us dearly. And he came and spread a beautiful gospel, lived a sinless life, and hung on a tree and died for you and for me. And what was foretold is that the temple would be rebuilt, and sure enough, it was. Jesus rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and one final time gave us the opportunity to be reconciled to the King of Kings. What he offered was forgiveness. We wanted justice, we wanted all sorts of things, but what Jesus came and brought was hope. One commentator wrote, in the New Testament, they believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection 
was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. That the empty tomb opened up a new door of hope. The apostle Peter said said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope. That people can be reborn to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the apostle Paul says, the good news about Jesus announces the hope of glory. In both cases, this hope is based upon a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The apostles believe that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was but a foretaste of what God has planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So church, there is a big difference between an optimistic earthly hope and one that we see throughout Scripture. For Christians, for those who follow the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, hope is bold. Our hope is that despite what we see around us, we know that God is still in control. Our hope is waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And if you tell the world that, they might think that that's crazy. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man raising from the dead. Christian hope looks back at the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And in that hope, we wait. In that hope, today, whatever circumstance you might be in, whatever thing you're trying to control and process, are you optimistic? Or are you letting go of control and letting the Lord do what only he can? As the worship team would come up this morning, my dear friend Eric would share it this way. Biblical hope is the certainty of God's presence and promise in an uncertain world. It is the expectancy that his unchanging character and faithfulness from the past will come through again in the present and the future. Spiritual expectancy is healthy because it is rooted in trusting the Lord with whatever he wants to do right now since we know he's been trustworthy before. Like faith, true hope requires us to let go and trust in the one who holds what we cannot yet see. But as we do, he will grant us eternal sight. As we close this morning. I don't have questions, but I'd like us to stand if we could. If you're able to, please stand. I want us to take a time that if we could just close our eyes for a moment. I want each of us here to reflect on a time or a moment in your life where God provided what you needed. There's a reason why we see these things called Ebenezer's throughout Scripture. They're things that are to draw our attention back to something God has done. It's why when Joshua points to the stones in the river, he says, when people ask about this, this is what you tell them. Not what you feel you should tell them. It's this is what God did. So I want us to think of a time where God showed up. 
Maybe it's yesterday. Maybe it's a week ago. Maybe it's a month ago, a year ago, five years ago. Every time I think of this, I'm drawn to how the Lord rescued my brother, who by all accounts and purposes should be dead. But the Lord healed him and saved him. And maybe you had a moment like that in your life where the Lord did something that no one can take credit for. Maybe it's a time that provision showed up in unexpected ways. Maybe it's time that when you were mourning, you woke up the next day with laughter because the King of Kings sat with you and rested with you and comforted your soul. Let us dwell on that for just a moment. Now I want you to think about whatever current circumstance might be in front of you. Maybe it's too difficult. Maybe it's insurmountable. Maybe it's a diagnosis. Who knows? It could be anything. And I want to ask you the question simply, if the Lord showed up in the past, like he always does, no matter what the circumstance, no matter what the outcome, are you trusting your present circumstance to him? In what are you placing your hope this morning? This is a time for recognition that we as people like to hold on to things and we as people like to control the outcome, but Lord, you might be doing something in us that's ultimately going to draw us closer to you. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I'd ask the question, well, then what is holding you back? What is holding you back from walking in the fullness and the hope that is provided only by the King of Kings? So as we take this time to worship together, if you feel the Lord is stirring something in your heart, then I pray you cry out to him. That we repent of the times that we try to hold on and create our, create our own destiny. That we learn to let go and recognize that all of this will pass away. But what Jesus promised us is eternal life place where we walk and dwell with him, that we can place our hope in this baby that was born and grew up and shared the gospel of good news and great joy, that all that accept him as their Lord and Savior walk in the forgiveness of sins and become adopted into the kingdom of heaven.